0: Good afternoon. Any of you notice there's a leak behind me? That started right after we got here today, and best we can tell it's related to AC. And if you know anything about AC, feel free to stick around afterwards and we'll figure that out. But uh, It's going to distract you, it's going to distract me. It's probably going to distract me worse because I want to turn around and and see, is this overflowing? Am I about to get washed away? Is this guy going to fall on me? Um, So at least you have it better than I have it. Keep that in mind. So like we've said, this is the first of our weekly worship almost a year ago. Next week we'll mark one single year from the first time we met in the Duritz living room for a Bible study. And we began to pray that God would build His church and to meet and go through the Gospel of John together. And so here we are almost a year later and we're finally starting to do weekly worship. It's an exciting time for us, but we ask that you pray. We pray for everything involved. We pray that transition for the musicians who are going to be busier would go well for liturgy and bulletin preparation for those who fill the communion cups, or the roof. Uh, It's all those things that now we have to worry about every week. Uh, It used to be, we'd have a month to fix that before we had to worry about it. But next week we'll have it hopefully ready to go. Anyway, we are in the book of Philippians. We've been going through this. Today we are starting in chapter 2 of the book. And you might remember that this is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul, who is imprisoned in Rome at this time. And it's written to the church in Philippi, who he cares for deeply, and who has been his partner in the ministry. That is, proclaiming the gospel to anyone who will listen. And so, Philippi is this, this local church, and they're a young local church. And, and while Paul is the author here, I want you to understand that this is ultimately God's word for his people. And that includes the church in Philippi, and that includes the church here in Manhattan, this church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have it with you in the bulletin, you'll you'll find the text there. Well, let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God is forever. Let's pray. Blessed Father in heaven, work deeply in our hearts to free us from the self-centeredness that so often shapes our lives. May we be led by the truth of the gospel to seek not only our own interests, but the interest of, of others. Will the love of Christ not only free us, but lead us to love others with pure hearts? Always we ask, Father, stir our hearts that are so easily moved to false idols of life. Stir them to love you and to rest in all that you are for us in the gospel. As we look now to your word, push out of our minds the to-do list of life. So that we may focus on the passage before us. And may you be glorified in our hearts. In Christ's great and holy name we pray. Amen. What we saw in the previous section, verses 27 through 30, was a call to unity. Unity when facing outside persecution, outside attacks to them. And it encouraged us to understand that with falling, Christ comes suffering of some sort. For Paul, while he wrote this, it it meant Prison. For our brothers and sisters in the Middle East today, that means the threat of death. For us in the United States, it means being thought-foolish. It means being marginalized in our society to some regard. Our text today then continues with you, that focus on unity. But this time, it's not about unity as we face it from the outside. It's about unity as we are to pursue it. Unity within the church body. Unity that really brings to light our own selfishness because that's the largest threat we're going to face. And so after this first word, this connecting word, so, our text moves quickly into what are these four distinct statements. If, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if there is any participation in the spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy. See, most often in, in language, when we see these if statements, it tells us that the answer is unknown. If it rains today, the football game will be canceled. If the jury finds him guilty, he will go to jail. If K-State beats Auburn, some of you will be sad. Not most of you. See, language is not always straightforward, though. There are times when we say things in question form to draw focus to the truth about the answer, the reality that this is indeed true. And that's what's going on here. And in in these situations, these if statements are really these sense statements, Matthew 6.30 is an example of that. Jesus is speaking and he says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This really isn't a question of whether, whether God clothes the grass of the field, is it? He does. Now, the point is that, that God does clothe the field, and so there's guarantee that he's also going to provide clothing for you. Each of these if statements we're looking at today in in our text is meant to draw our focus to the truth of the content, the truth that is leading us to accept a larger statement that he's going to say afterwards. Because of this, 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 and this, won't you complete my joy? And then he goes on to explain what that looks like. But first, let's look at each of these statements in a little more detail. The first is if there is any encouragement in Christ. Remember, we are to understand this as since there is encouragement in Christ. It's a reminder that we have the support of Jesus Christ. Uh, We have his support as we pursue community that has a shared love for our Savior. See, the word encouragement, we know. It's when someone's rooting for you. You've experienced this. I hope you've experienced this. It's when someone is rooting for your success. The words of a parent to their child as they try something difficult or someone who comes alongside you, a friend who is struggling and says these encouraging words, you can do it. You can beat this. You can sustain this. You can defeat this. In John 17 verses 20 through 23, we hear these encouraging words from our Savior speaking towards unity. He's praying for the disciples. He's He's praying for us as well. He's speaking to our Heavenly Father, and he says, beginning in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one." I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Christ, who died for the sins of us all, all of us who trusted him, he, he desires that we be unified. As a parent, I've grown to understand this very well, and in a really new way, I, I have this desire to see my children get along, to, to love each other, to live in peace, and, and to enjoy each other's company. When I see them work together to solve a problem, or or even better, when I see two of them working together to help the third one, it it gives me joy. Joy I never understood before. And I I can only imagine that's what God desires for His covenant children as we interact with each other. Which is every one of us whose faith is in Christ. So is there encouragement in Christ? Yes. The second statement says, If there is any comfort in love, Comfort means to soothe, to console, to lead someone to feel safe again. One of you shared a story this week about a very young boy that you were speaking to. And they said, who loves you to this boy? And he wasn't in a great mood and he responded, no one. That's all I heard of the story because that's kind of the funny part, right? I don't know what happened after that. but, But I expect it wasn't, yeah, you're probably right. Brother, that's the moment for encouraging words. Words of, I love you, and your mom loves you, and your dad loves you, and Jesus loves you. The comfort in in view here, though, is the love of Christ, which we experience in the gospel. The love that was known to us when Jesus chose to lay down his life to cover our sin, to forgive us of our sin. That's the love that first loved us, so that we might love others. So is there comfort in love? Yes. Yes. The third statement is there any participation in the spirit that word participation here is often translated the well-known term koinonia which means fellowship Uh, when we come together when we interact with each other when we relate to each other the point is that we have fellowship with each other because of our participation in the holy spirit it doesn't matter how much we have in common with each other i spent one semester in college, I went to a few different schools before in the up at A&M, but I spent one semester at a college out in East Texas called East Texas Baptist University, and the dorms were set up like these apartments. There were four rooms, and then there was a living room and a little kitchen. Some of you might have seen these, and the other three guys in this house happened to be Trekkies, like serious, serious Trekkies. Some of you probably are, and you'll come out of the woodwork after this. These guys would sit in our living room, and they would begin to discuss whether the Starship Akros, you know ncc 623 I actually look some up, NC-6237 could withstand an attack from a gyro NC-6550, and, and they would have these discussions, and I would just sit back and listen to this, but uh, they would discuss these specific lasers, and they would be like, but no, it has this force shield, there's no way that that kind of laser could get through this, this force shield, and they'd argue these things back and forth, and back and forth, and some of you are looking at me like crazy, but you football fans sound the exact same when you're talking about <laughs> dime defenses, and you know, button hook this and that. Uh, So these guys would argue, and I'd try to explain to them, guys, these aren't real. (laughs) They don't really exist at all. See, I, I couldn't be less of a Trekkie. I sat back and I mocked them to their faces, because that's what I do sometimes. I didn't have that in common with them one single bit, but since they all trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin we shared this participation in the spirit and these guys were my brothers in christ and so we had this connection it wasn't trekky, but we had this connection that was unified in christ and that's the point here are you united to each other because you are indwelled by the holy spirit yes the final sense statement is if or since if there is any affection and sympathy Uh, Have you experienced this from the hand of the Lord? uh, Affection and sympathy. If you're a believer in Christ, the obvious answer is, is yes, you have experienced this. Because let me remind you of the simple fact that you are a sinner deserving of hell. We all are. The affection and sympathy that you have experienced is that Jesus loves you. So much, in fact, that he laid down his life on the cross for you. Not because you deserved it. Just because he has chosen to love you. We call that grace. And so these things are true. You have received encouragement in Christ. And you have comfort from love. And you have participation in the Spirit. And you have experience of affection and sympathy at the mercy of our Lord. The whole of these statements then is is the force behind this imperative. That's the command in the next verse. In verse 2, Paul writes, complete my joy. Complete means to fill up all the way. Imagine a glass that's most of the way full. The way that you would complete it would be to fill it up all the way to the top, all the way to the brim of the glass. So this question is, is how do we do that? How do we complete Paul's joy? How do we fill his glass up to the absolute brim? Well, he tells us quite clearly in the text. He says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This whole statement is basically saying the same thing over and over and over to make a point. It's like the classic three keys to to reality. Location, location, location. In this case, though, we're seeing the four keys in completing Paul's joy, which is unity, 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 unity. Now, don't confuse unity with uniformity. Uniformity requires that everything be the exact same. It gives the idea that we are these robots that are all made to function the exact same. If uniformity were applied to food, it'd be some nasty mush type of food. Unity, however, is the working together of individual elements which are not uniform. Uh, Unity applied to food, then, is is when various flavors are brought together to make something so wonderfully pleasing to our taste buds. Like the bread we're going to eat during the Lord's Supper. Uniformity is a bowl of flour, and I hand you a spoon and say, enjoy. You won't. Unity is what results when you take the flour and and the water and the yeast and the salt, and it's all brought together and baked up into this goodness. Throughout scripture and all across creation, it is made clear that our God is not a God of uniformity. He is, however, an amazing creator of unity. Uh, look at the way the plants and the, and the animals and people function in unity together, creating this beautiful ecosystem. We, we humans breathe out this air called carbon dioxide. I know I'm getting on some difficult ground here getting into the science, but carbon dioxide, what this means is that if we just keep breathing, before long the world's going to run out of oxygen because we keep putting out this carbon dioxide. And yet through photosynthesis, the plants take that and they put out oxygen back into the world. And so because we both exist here, because we have this unity as we look at the way God's created the world, we get to see the, the way that unity is just this beautiful working. Or, or think about harmony in music. Another difficult ground I'm getting into. Four pianos today playing the exact same thing? Well, that would be okay. But when we hear the piano, and we hear the violin, and we hear the guitar, and we hear your beautiful voices rising, that is so much more beautiful. That's what Romans 12, 16 means when it says, live in harmony with each other. That's unity. And then look at the way that God has created people. We could all be uniform. We could all be one single gender, but God has created us men and women. Yes, it's ugly when there's disunity in that, but what a wonderful blessing it is to see these unique genders created by God working in unity together. And the same could be said for various ethnic groups, which which God has created. God gives us this this picture of the future in Romans 7-9. It's not one nation or one ethnic group, it's every group of people. Revelation 7:9 reads, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's multiple groups brought together for the worship of our one God. And finally, God himself Within the Trinity is this this image of unity. Three distinct persons, one Godhead in perfect unity. We cannot look anywhere almost in creation without seeing this. We see the diversity which God has created working together in unity, and it's amazing. It's the wonderful taste of of well-cooked food on our tongues. It's the sound of harmonious music in our ears. It's the joy of a husband and a wife meeting each other's needs. It's, it's the swelling of worship in our hearts as we cry out to God and worship together. We need this unity in the church. And I don't just mean on Sunday. I, I mean as we interact with each other outside of here throughout the week, as we care for each other. We need unity, but the question is, do we really want unity? Because it's not easy. Unity is not our natural desire. Too often we prefer victory over unity. Too often we prefer gain over unity. Too often we prefer ourselves over unity with others. Now Paul, and ultimately God, tells us how we can have unity in in verses 3 and 4. This gets down to some pretty practical application. It's presented as opposite sides of the same coin. Let's look at those verses again. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. One side of that coin presents it from the angle of of what we should not do. And the other side, of course, what we should do. The negative side of the coin in verse 3 says that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition. Paul's already mentioned this term before. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, you might remember, he says, referring to these people who have really been preaching the gospel in a way to, to cause him trouble. He says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It's no wonder then that Paul would lead with this. He's experienced the pain of disunity as fellow Christians have acted out of selfish ambition, promoting themselves before the kingdom of God. And the worst part about it is they're using the gospel to do it. Selfish ambition then exists when we are concerned more about our own success with no concern about the effects it might have on somebody else. The second word in verse 3 we notice is conceit. Conceit literally means vain glory, it's empty pride. It's about valuing yourself higher than you ought to. It's like those people that have the garage sales and and they sell their items at just barely below what they paid for them 20 years ago. You know, I I understand that you you paid $100 for this Walkman in 1993. Uh, It's not worth $95 today. Conceit, then, is valuing of ourselves higher than we ought to. And as I I researched this, this Greek word, I looked into this dictionary from a few generations back and I was shocked by one of the words that was there to describe it. It said, conceit was self-esteem. Not thought of it that way. That's such a part of our our culture's vocabulary today that we sometimes miss what it means. Self-esteem means to esteem ourselves. That's self-admiration, self-honor, self-pride. Self-esteem was was once a vice in our culture. Today, it's a a virtue. So much so, in fact, that it sounds very strange even saying so right now publicly out loud, that that there might be something wrong with the way we are always promoting self-esteem. I don't you're going to throw anything at me. It's good. The real problem, though, isn't that we affirm our children that they have value. They do have value. The problem is when we give them a false view of who they are, a false source of their value. You know, telling a man who has chest pains that he's fine might comfort him. It might give him confidence to walk outside and do whatever he wants, but if it drives him away from the doctor, you haven't helped him. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He knew his sinful condition well, and it drove him to Christ. And so I don't know who in your life has told you that you're perfect, but you're not. I'm not. We're not. But Jesus is. And Jesus values even though you're not perfect. And he will make you perfect in eternity. And that work begins now. What we need is less self-esteem in our lives. What we need is more Christ-esteem in our lives. Because pride ultimately leads to disunity. In fact, Galatians 5.26 warns us against how pride leads to disunity and envy. It says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We don't want to envy others. We want to love them. John Calvin said, selfish ambition and conceit are two diseases with the same remedy. Remedy, of course, is humility. And that's what our text says. Look at verse 3 with me. In humility, that second portion, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Our sinful nature urges us to assert our own interest above the interest of others. That's our sinful nature at work. A a sort of survival of the fittest mentality. But that's not what God has for us as new creation. He desires humility. Humility, unlike conceit, is correct assessment of who we are. Not in comparison to other humans, but in comparison to our God. In comparison to his word. When we compare ourselves to others, we end up bitter at those that we judge to be better than ourselves, or richer than, or more talented than, or more beautiful than, or more athletic than, or smarter, or kinder, or more popular than. And if the opposite proves true, if we judge ourselves better than them, we end up being prideful. And So on the one end, we judge ourselves to humans and we end up prideful. On the other side, we end up bitter at those we judge ourselves against. And our text is asking us not to assess how we compare to others. To assess where we are before God. To find humility. We are told simply this, to count them as more significant than ourselves. It doesn't matter if they are or not. We're told to count them as such. So say someone's moving a piece of furniture into a house across the street. You're standing on your driveway and you see this. The question is not, how might helping them benefit me? It's not, are they deserving of my help? It's not, are they worthy of my help? The question for us is, will I consider them worthy of my help? Because God has called me to do so. Uh, This is the mindset we get from humility. Humility that's being exercised in our lives. And it's exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians 10.24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This call to humility is a constant throughout scripture we see it everywhere Romans twelve three says for the for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned verse 4 in our text supports verse 3 it says let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others so it's not that we shouldn't consider our own interests but that we should be mindful of, of others. Particularly the interest of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. I learned something interesting in the study of this portion. This word interest here, it's, it's a filler word. From this Greek word ta, it's a general word and it just means something. You know, anything, something. And, and so when we see this word interest, interest is a, a great way to put it, but I want you to understand that this is an open-ended statement. It's open-ended meaning it could be anything at all. It could be let each of us look not only to your own finances or not only to your own schoolwork or not only to your own family or not only to your own house or your own reputation or your own joy and happiness or your own children or your own time and your own money. It could be anything at all. And this is in many ways a more fleshed out explanation of the second commandment that Christ gives us when he gives the great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment assumes you love yourself. That's not the question. What it commands then is that you love your neighbor, that you look out for their interests as well as your own. And this is the challenge. I understand that. We all have enough of our own problems to worry about. That's that's what we want to say. And that's exactly the mindset that this text is pushing against. This is in accord with what Jesus is teaching in Mark 10, 43 and 44, but... It says this, But it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Not many of us that want to be first after hearing that. Our text is calling us to a way of life that is only possible if we find our joy and our satisfaction and our goals and our value in Christ alone. How do we do this as a church? How do we do this as a a covenant community to live like this? How do we shut off conceit and selfish ambition? How do we put on humility and, and counting others more significant? We've said it once already in this, but I want you to see it again. We start with a proper understanding of ourselves. We get that not by comparing ourselves to each other, but comparing ourselves to God. We shut down that inner voice that wants to say, I know more scripture than him. I serve more than her. I attend worship more than they do. My kids are better behaved than hers. I give my children more grace than they do. My campus ministry is more faithful than theirs. I I bet we give more money than they give. We don't pride ourselves for moral victory." We thank God for it, for the grace that he's given through it, but we also confess that our hearts are so evil that our moral victory could be gone in about two seconds. We don't compare ourselves to others, but to Christ, who is perfect, to God's word, which is holy. And when we honestly compare ourselves to the standard of God, we get a good idea of where we stand before our maker. Guilty. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is is found in Luke 5 when Peter and his co-workers have been out fishing all day and they've caught absolutely nothing. And Jesus sits in their boat and he teaches people for a little while. And then Jesus, who, remember, is a carpenter, tells these men who are professional fishermen to go out a bit further and let their nets down. Guys, I know a little thing about fishing. I, I build tables. And he tells them to let their nets down. So, of course, reluctantly, they do it, and they catch the mother load of all fish. Peter's response to all this, we we read in Luke 5, 8. He says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He says, depart from me. He realizes that Jesus is holy, and he is not. He realizes that he has no right to be in the presence of Jesus, and yet it's at that very moment that Jesus calls Peter to come and to follow him. And so you may be wondering, that's, that's great, but what does that have to do with humility? What does that have to do with counting others as more significant than ourselves? The point is that we are freed from the chains of sin because of the humility of Jesus, because he considered us important enough to die on the cross for us. This is the model that Jesus gives. That's the calling that Jesus calls us to in this text. That's the way of thinking that we can now have because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So let's live as a community of sinners who are redeemed by the blood of Lamb. Uh, Get that in your mind. Get it in your mind right now that the person to the left of you right now, they're more important than you. And, And the person to the right of you right now, they are to be considered more important than you. And that person in this room that you want to avoid because they drive you nuts, hopefully there aren't a lot of those, but that person, you're to count them as more important than you. Yeah, even Even them. They are to be counted as more important than you in your life. Because our Savior calls us to look out for their interests. And so let's not live for self. Let's not live for our own little kingdoms which won't last. But for the eternal kingdom where Jesus our Lord sits on the throne forever. Now before we we pray, I want to end with one more thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you probably heard of him. He was a pastor in Germany while the Nazis were in charge. And uh, there was a time when he listed off these seven ways to destroy selfish ambition and promote humility within Christian communities, within the church. And don't worry about whether you can write these down quick enough or not. We'll put them on the website later this week. The first one he says is hold your tongue. Refuse to speak rudely or critically about Christian brothers and sisters. This is complaining. This is gossip. Don't do it. If you have a problem, talk to them about it. Two, understand that others, like you, like Paul, are the chief of sinners. So they, like you, need Christ. Don't expect them to be perfect. Three, listen long and patiently. Listen to others until you understand what the need of others is. Uh, Often we run people over because we haven't bothered to understand what their real needs are, uh, what they feel, what they think. So listen long and patiently. Number four, understand that your time can be interrupted. Build margin into your life so that you may be able to help others. If you're too busy all the time, you're never going to have time to consider anyone as more important than yourself. Five, preserve their freedom. Uh, What he means by this is give them freedom to be themselves. He means their individuality, their their weakness and their oddities. Allow them to have have those aspects that really are a trial to your own patience. Uh, That often can cause friction. Uh, give them the freedom to not be you. Six, declare God's word to fellow believers when they need to hear it. Counsel and advise and rebuke with the word of God and not just so-called good ideas. Uh, you can't make people choose biblical-wide decisions. That's, that's a work of the Holy Spirit in their life, but you can make sure that they know what God's word has to say about any situation. And seven, the last one, understand that Christian authority is known by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service. So don't expect attention and praise to your service. Serve because you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and because it glorifies our God. Our unity here has been great. I've been so impressed with it. My prayer is that it continues, that we would value unity because we see Christ pray about it. We see Paul make such a huge issue here. This is one of those things that is so important to the life of the church. Let us pursue it. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to want what we truly need. You, God. Give us more desire to know you, more joy in your word, more love for your people, more rest in your presence, and a greater capacity to find value in you alone, so that we might humbly consider others as more important than ourselves. Father, I pray for your people. What I pray for my family, and what I pray for my own soul. Please grant us hearts to love you more than anything, more than luxury, more than comfort, more than safety, more than reputation, more than anything. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.